everybody. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio on the Relevant Radio mobile app. This is your host, Cale Clark, and this is our series on Romans. Can you handle the truth? And now we've come to what, for a lot of people, is their favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And certainly for a lot of us, it's our favorite chapter in the letter to the Romans. As great as all the chapters are, this is pretty special. Romans chapter 8. After the somewhat, I don't want to say depressing, things that St. Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7, we now have the solution. And really, Scott Hahn calls it the three S's, spirit, sonship, and suffering. How can suffering be part of the solution? Well, we'll get into that. But remember at the end of chapter 7, St. Paul said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, it is bleak. He's talking about the power of concupiscence. Even after baptism, we have to fight. We have to struggle against this tendency to to go back to the ways of what Paul calls the old man, the old person. He says in uh, chapter 7, verse 19, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that what I do not want to do is what I do. It is really, really bleak. But he says at the end of chapter 7, this is kind of a hint of what's to come. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what he talks about in Romans chapter 8. This is how God solves that problem. So it's very much like a sunrise. It's a lot more bright and cheerful. So let's read the first part of chapter 8 together. If you want to open up your Bibles, flip them to Romans chapter 8 starting with verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, let's stop there at the end of verse 8. Once again, Paul is setting up here this dichotomy between the spirit and the flesh. And again, the flesh does not mean and the flesh is obviously portrayed here as something bad. The flesh does not mean that the human body is evil, that's some sort of prison we need to break out of. That, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying the material creation is awful. No, it was created by God and it was very good, said God. In fact, God thinks so much of our human bodies. He's going to re- resurrect them at the end of time. And he took one on at the incarnation. We'll talk about that in just a second. So again, the flesh in St. Paul means the sinful part of us, the sinful nature, as it's sometimes translated, I think better translated as the sinful nature. This is this is the part that even post-baptism is affected by the after effects of original sin. And 
and can be tempted and drawn back into committing actual sins. And this is why, of course, God sets up the sacrament of confession for us. He knows that we need it, even post-baptism. So what's what's uh, great about this is that it's a very Trinitarian chapter. The Father deals with the problem by sending the Son to redeem our world from sin, and the Spirit raises us to a new life. So Father, Son, Spirit are all involved here, all three divine persons of the Trinity, as Scott Hahn mentions in his commentary along with Curtis Mitch on Romans. Now, what's what's also intriguing about this, and Han, Han takes great pains to point this out too, that Paul mentions the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 18 times in this chapter alone. That is phenomenal. That's a lot of mentions of the Holy Spirit in just one chapter. And this is exactly what God had promised would happen in the Old Covenant. We find ourselves powerless to fulfill the law of God in our own strength. It just is not workable, and that's what chapter 7 is really all about. But now we see that God has gifted us with the Spirit, and this is something that he promised long ago. It's now become a reality. Don't forget the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. It says, This is the covenant, obviously God speaking here, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then we look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. This is exactly what Paul says is happening right now. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, this is really, this obedience is only possible because of the indwelling spirit. Now, in the Catholic Church, we, we always say that grace builds upon nature. And we have a clear case of this here, that God, through his grace, the grace and gift of the spirit, enables us to really live supernaturally, to do what is not possible through human effort alone. And St. Augustine said this, he kind of put it this way. He said, the law was given in order that grace might be sought. Grace was given in order that the law might be fulfilled. That's a beautiful phrase from St. Augustine. And as St. Paul has clearly shown, he's taken great pains to spell this out in the early chapters of Romans. We can't keep the law on our own, but, but it shows us what we have to, it's the measuring stick, what we've got to live up to. And the law was given so that grace might be sought, that we might say, Lord, help us. We, we can't do this on our own. And now this gift of the Spirit is given to us so that we might actually live according to the commandments. That is just absolutely beautiful. And Jesus has made it all possible through what he has done. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit that followed on Pentecost. And this is what Paul really talks about in verse 3 of Romans 8. He says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So this is, this is really just beautiful. And I want to point out something here. When Paul says the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Some have misunderstood this to, to, to think that Paul meant, oh, he only appeared to be human. This is, again, 
the heresy of Gnosticism, this idea that Christ was merely a phantasm. He wasn't really human. He didn't really have to deal with what we have to deal with. He didn't suffer as we must suffer in life. No, he was really incarnate. And, and this is why, again, I, I really love the Gospel of John on this front because the Apostle John is very, very, he had to fight against these guys too, these false teachers. He's very clear on the power of the incarnation. And in his prologue to his Gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in fact, the literal translation of that, that he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, he pitched his tent among us. We we looked at the book of Exodus in the, uh, in the Faith Explained series, we did an Exodus series, and we talked about how Moses was instructed by God to build the tabernacle, the, the, the locus of God's presence on earth in the Old Covenant as they were traveling through the wilderness. And now the locus of God's presence is in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christ comes to us really in this kind of almost triple, it's a triple play, really. His incarnate body, of course, the presence of God living there. But then the mystical body of Christ, the church, of which we are a part, we're infused into that body through baptism, a community of living stones, as St. Peter puts it uh, later in the New Testament. And then, of course, there's the Eucharistic body of Christ. So we have to have Christ in all three of these bodily manifestations, if you will, to have the total Christ. And we need that. But I also love how uh, the Apostle John in his first letter, he talks again so clearly about the, the, the living Christ, the incarnate Christ. Let's check it out here in 1 John chapter 1. In the first letter of St. John, he writes this right at the beginning in chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we saw it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which, with, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. I just love those first four verses of the first letter of John. He was from the beginning, Christ from all eternity, the divine Son. And we have heard him speak. We saw him with our eyes. We looked at him, he says. We touched him. We, we Especially, I would say, not just uh, during his earthly ministry, but after the resurrection. You, you, you think that John and Thomas and all the others, they, they probably all kind of plunged their hands in, into the, the wounds of Christ and, and just grasped him and in his resurrected form. Wow, he is really corporally alive from the dead. He says, this is the word of life made flesh and made manifest. And we are not lying about this. We proclaim this to you so that you can be with us in the church, have this fellowship. So th this is a unbelievable reality that St. Paul mentions again in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, that Christ was sent in flesh. It, not, that, not that his flesh was sinful. And that's why I think he says in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was really incarnate, was really human, but <laughs> he was like us in every way but sin, as it says elsewhere. But he did pay the penalty for our sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh. He made the just requirement of the law. And that, that's really an Old Testament kind of phrase for making an offering, making an offering for sin. He paid the penalty. In Romans 6.23, which we've already seen, St. Paul says the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And Christ paid that penalty on our behalf so that we didn't have to. And so really, this is, this is the spirit part of the, the three S's that are here, spirit, sonship, and suffering. But let's now look at the next part. All right, so let's, let's look at uh, verse 9 here. St. Paul says, and again, we're back in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If the spirit of God really dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. So let's stop here after uh, verse 11. This idea that if Christ is in you, your bodies are dead because of sin. What does that mean? Well, it, it simply means that we're, we're all going to die. And saints and sinners alike do die in the physical body. But yet, uh, those who do not repent, those who do not receive this forgiveness and gift from God, they die twice. They die not only physically, but spiritually, supernaturally as well, if they are in mortal sin when they pass away. So this is why it's important to know that even for us saints, our bodies will die and decay, but we will live forever because of the fact that Christ Jesus has given us a down payment on eternal life. That's why it says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. So this is really important here. Let's, let's keep going uh, with Romans. Let's look at verse 12 in chapter 8. Paul writes, So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, and again, he means the sinful nature. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, let's stop here for one second. In verse 13, when St. Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What's he talking about here? Putting to death the, the things of the body. He's talking about mortification. And of course, mortification, this word to mortify, uh, you could say, well, it comes from the French word more, which means death, but that's really not what's going on here. It, it, it comes from the Latin translation of what Paul says here when he says, put to death the deeds of the body. But that's essentially what we do. We we mortify ourselves. This is the whole purpose of penance in the church. This is the whole purpose of voluntary mortifications that we take part in during Lent, for example. This idea of giving up something that's good. Things that are not necessarily sinful. Of course, we should give up sinful things, but it's it's not sinful necessarily to, to enjoy something good in life, like a dessert, for example, or, or someone might give up having a, a glass of wine now and again during Lent. Not because these things are bad, but because we know that we give them up for the sake of something greater, to focus on prayer for a certain time. And then we receive them again uh, when we feast during the Easter season or on Sundays. 
And, and this is really important because we, we have to get control over the body and its senses, its appetites, which always want to run wild. And so we've got to bring everything under control of the spirit. And in the, in the life of the resurrection after Easter, we won't have that problem because our physical resurrected bodies will be totally under the, the, the control and guidance of the spirit. We won't have to fight against this concupiscence anymore, dragging us down. I really love that. Okay, so let's keep going now. And we see how we're moving from slavery under sin to sonship in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So stop here for a second. So he does sort of hint at the suffering. We're going to talk about that in a second, but let's talk about divine sonship here because Christianity is the only religion that preaches this truth in all its fullness. And yeah, you might find a couple of verses here and there in the old covenant that talk about the fatherhood of God, but it's extremely rare. But Jesus makes this very much manifest. He opens it up like a, like a flower opening up its petals. You can look at a couple of verses in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, it, it talks about the angels as sons of God. Psalm 29, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. This, this idea of fatherhood is kind of implicit there. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, all the Israelites are called sons of the Lord your God. Isaiah 63, verse 8, for he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. And then, of course, very famously, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, this has to do with David. God says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. Uh, so th this is um, uh, the divine sonship, if you will, of David, the, the, the kings that are in the line of David are, are known as sons of God. We see this especially in Psalm 2, which is really a messianic psalm. It says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. This psalm was applied very much to Jesus in the early church, and we'll have to get into that in another episode. But this is very, very much part of the Old Testament, but not super clear until Jesus reveals it in the new. Very much like Augustine said, the New Testament is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. How did Jesus reveal the fatherhood of God? We'll have to deal with that in the next episode of Romans. So stick with me, come back tomorrow, but don't leave just yet because right now we're going to open up an excellent question in our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's go for it. Okay, as we pop open our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can pop me an email I'll try to answer it on the show. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. You can also try to follow me on the X app, the x.com app. My handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E, and you can try to get your question to me over there as well if you are so inclined. 
Now, in the last Q&A, we talked about a particular email that I got. It was kind of twofold. Uh, the questioner was asking a little bit about deja vu, and we dealt with that. Uh, in case you've forgotten, it's deja vu all over again. You can you can check the archives on relevantradio.com and on the app. But this questioner also asked a little bit about the idea of past lives. What would be a Catholic point of view on that? And again, this question came from Christine, who said, my question is about past lives. How can I have an experience where I see myself with someone as children playing together? And I know I've been there before with that person. It's confusing. This is the deja vu part, sort of. And many people remember past lives, some from when they were children. How do we explain this, Christine? Okay, so let me deal with this whole question of past lives. Really what this is, in a sense, is a question about reincarnation. Is it possible for Catholics to believe in reincarnation? Uh, there's a priest in New Hampshire named uh, Father Michael Kerper who wrote a uh, sort of a post about this, uh, responding to um, a question on reincarnation. And, and what is reincarnation exactly? Well, he, he says re really reincarnation is the belief that a soul can move from one physical body to another. At the end of the day, that's really what it is. In a lot of non-Christian religions, it kind of involves a movement from quote-unquote higher to quote-unquote lower life forms. Let's say that you're a Persian king in one lifetime, and then in the next life you're a mosquito. Why? Because you've done either good or evil, deserving reward or punishment. I guess it could go the other way as well. You could go from being a quote-unquote lower life form to a higher one in the next life under this reincarnation point of view. So the whole idea here is that the body that a soul has reflects its deeds in a past life. And you're kind of either reward or punished in terms of who you turn into or what you turn into. So this idea of moving from body to body can continue on ad infinitum, literally, until the soul is quote-unquote purified and then freed from bodily life. And again, this is this is a concept which is very common in a lot of religions, that the body, any kind of body, is viewed as a prison. This is not the Catholic understanding of the human person. This is dualism. This is absolutely heretical. This is clearly not the view of sacred scripture. It's not the view of the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's not the view of God. Because the human person is a union of soul and body, of spirit and matter. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. We see this in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, look at Genesis chapter 2. We see God forming the body of the first human from the ground, from the dust of the earth. Then God breathes into the first man the divine breath of life. So what we have here, and then it says he becomes a living soul. So we have here a life that is spiritual and material at the same time. And the, and, the, and the body is not simply a container, a disposable container for the soul. They're together, and this is the way it should be. Adam can't migrate to another person's body. And then we see also, even in the Old Testament, even when the concept of resurrection isn't super clear, it's still there, though. Think about Abraham. Abraham, it says that he breathed his last, dying at a ripe old age, grown old after a full life. And he was taken to his kinsmen, 
to his, his relatives who had, who had gone before. We see this in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. So this is an idea that the, in the afterlife, human persons are gathered together and their original relationships somehow endure. Uh, the, the Abraham is Abraham. He doesn't become someone else. And he's gathered to the fathers, if you will. Now, what about Ezekiel 37? That's, that's an interesting chapter as well in the Old Covenant. This is, of course, the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a collection of skeletons, but they come alive, it says. They stand upright as a vast army. Flesh gets on the bones again. This is really a prophecy about the future resurrection. And of course, in the New Covenant, it's revealed most fully through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became fleshed and pitched his tent among us. John 1.14. This humanity he still has. And he kept his resurrected body. He still has it. He ascended into heaven with it. And so this is what's going to happen to us as well. We will be resurrected. Our bodies will be reunited with our souls on the last day. The whole person will be reunited. You don't become someone else. You will always only be you. And this is it. And also, the church condemns the whole idea of the pre-existence of a soul as well. Every human person, at the moment of conception, a soul is infused into that person, given by God. The human parents come up with the body. God provides the soul. You could say God provides the body as well, right? Because everything traces itself back to God, of course. Origin of Alexandria, who is a, a very famous writer in the early church, he had some great things to say. In fact, Pope Benedict really admired his work and actually gave a Wednesday audience talk, at least one, about Origin of Alexandria. But he was never canonized because there were some issues in his, in his writings. And I think he bought into the pre-existence of souls, but the church said, no, no, that, that's, that's not the case. And so we are created at a moment in time. Ludwig Ott, who was the author of a very classic theological text called The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, which came out originally in 1954, he put it this way, quote, The identity must not be conceived in such a fashion that all material parts which at any time or at a definite moment belong to the earthly body will be present in the body in the resurrection, as the human body always remains the same in spite of the constant changing of its constituent matter. It suffices for the preservation of the identity. If a relatively small share of the amount of the matter in the earthly body is contained in the body after resurrection. What's he really saying there? He's saying that basically our bodies go through changes over time. Hey, maybe might put on a few pounds, take them off. Let's hope we were taking them off and, and becoming uh, more like the sculpted image of Christ, both outside and, of course, on the inside too. But that same body that you have will be reunited with you at the resurrection. You'll become someone else. You will always be you. There's only one of you. There ever will be only one of you. And so that's what makes human existence and life so unique and god loves each one of us uniquely he's created us specifically for a purpose no reincarnation but there is resurrection in the truth of the catholic church all right that's it for the faith explained today i'm your host kale clark please join me in the next episode catch me live on the kale clark show 5 p.m central right here on relevant radio and don't forget to send your questions to me I'll try to answer them in the Q&A mailbag. The address is faith at relevantradio.com by email. God bless you and peace.